Don't Cry For Me, Argentina, composed by Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice, is sung here by Madonna and portrayed in the film Evita. The song is a heartfelt plea to the Argentine people. The legacy left by Evita Perón exemplifies the political leader who did truly care about the people she led. We here at Solutions to Balance, as well as our guest today, Pierce Edwards, also advocate for political leadership that truly cares about peace and the people they lead. Welcome, friends. We are far Radio, WFMP, LE, 106.5 FM, and you are listening to Solutions to Violence, a program sponsored by Forward Radio. Forward Radio is a subcommittee of the Louisville Fellowship of Reconciliation. I'm Jamie McMillan, here with co-host Jim Johnson, our technical engineers, Carolyn Brooks Johnson. The following is part of WFMP's Public Affairs Educational Programming. The views expressed are those of our guests and not the station. If you want to share your views, you may contact us by sending an email email to solutionsofbalance18 at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. We think you're going to enjoy our broadcast today. It is our pleasure to have as our guest, Mr. Pierce Edwards. Welcome, Pierce. Thank you for having me. Pierce Edwards is a PhD candidate in political science at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. His research focuses on repression and resistance within authoritarian regimes. He studies how non-state actors affect regime repression. His research highlights how social elites enable the efforts of maintaining authoritarian regime institutions. These efforts attempt to eliminate popular threats to authoritarian rule. Perhaps more importantly, Edwards' research focuses on how ordinary citizens can restrain those regime institutions. Applying those theories to regimes in Latin America, Pierce Edwards' interest is especially in the archival study of Cold War era dictatorships. Related areas of interest are how repression affects politics and public attitudes in, in the short and in the long term. He also examines these effects across regime types. Edwards' particular attention is in the effects of accountability measures for repression. Also, the effects of regimes' efforts to build support for repression through framing and labeling of resistance. His research has been published in the British Journal of Political Science. Welcome, Pierce Edwards, to Solutions to Violence. Great to be here. So, Mr. Edwards, you are a PhD candidate in political science. How is it you came to the purpose of studying political science? Absolutely. So, as was mentioned, I'm a PhD candidate in political science at Emory University, and I study political science because I'm interested in the ways in which ordinary people make decisions about how to relate to powerful groups in society, and in particular, their governments. So, I'm interested in why people choose to resist repressive governments and what effects that might have, or on the other hand, why some people choose to do nothing and or even assist repressive governments and what effect that has. I'm also interested in why people believe that governments should be able to use violence against their citizens, or why some people might actually support human rights and believing that people have certain rights and liberties uh, to be protected. And I think this question matters and drove me to political science because I think it speaks to each of us as individuals. What role can we play in bringing about the kind of society that we want to live in? And what good or harm can come from taking those kinds of actions? So the focus of your research is repression and resistance in authoritarian regimes. What brought you to those topics? 
Well, authoritarian regimes are still fairly common in the world today. There, there was a large drop in the number of these regimes at the end of the last century, but there's a growing concern about the number of countries in the world that are vulnerable to becoming authoritarian. So scholars call this process uh, democratic backsliding. So governments gradually lose the guardrails around democracy. Power might become more concentrated in the hands of a single leader or political party, and citizens begin to lose their rights and liberties. And so for me, in this context, some of the most interesting examples of repression and resistance are, are occurring. So we have, you know, famous examples such as the, you know, the tank man image in Tiananmen Square in 1989, the beginning of the Arab Spring protests with the self-immolation of the Tunisian fishmonger. And so, so these are just very compelling examples of, of repression and resistance in, in regimes. And on the flip side, we see people choosing to aid authoritarian regimes. So in Nazi Germany, people would report their neighbors uh, to the authorities for political crimes. Um, in Chile, a case that I've studied more, uh, people will point out dissidents uh, to the military, even though they knew the military would, would be likely to, to kill those dissidents. Uh, so, so kind of both sides of that equation are what make repression and resistance in authoritarian regimes so interesting to me. Your chief area of interest is in studying regimes in South America. How many countries do you explore in, in, in studying, or is there just one? Yeah, so the research that I've done in South America centers on Argentina and Chile. And so these are two countries in what's called the Southern Cone of South America. And they have fairly distinct histories in the last century. Uh, Chile has more political and economic stability than Argentina, for example. But both countries, they also have some commonalities. They experienced high degrees of political divisions and polarization. And they were also ruled by right-wing military dictatorships in the 1970s and, and 1980s. And I think Argentina in particular is a very complicated, interesting case to study. Uh, the economist Simon Kuznets was once quoted as saying, uh, maybe this was an apocryphal quote, but he said there's four kinds of countries in the world, developed countries, underdeveloped countries, Japan, and Argentina. So Argentina as a whole, as you might imagine, presents some very interesting topics for research. Yeah, so your studies also have a bend toward particular groups, uh, groups of re religious background and, and practice. Tell us a bit about why you've chosen those people and, and why you? Right, so I'm particularly interested in religious groups is because as I study Latin America, and a large number of, of people in Latin America identify as members of the Catholic Church, at least historically, even though that's changed in recent years. Um, so in, in, in the words of one scholar in Argentina, being Catholic was considered being identical to being a citizen of the country. All social groups were considered to be represented by the Catholic Church. Uh, so it's important to study religious groups because they're such an important group in society. And people interact with religious groups on a regular basis in Latin America. Children would attend Catholic school, receive health care from, from Catholic health care providers, receive aid from Catholic charities, and participate in Catholic community groups. Um, and so for this reason, it's important to study these groups. They have power and influence. The church is a global organization that has a reach across a lot of countries and and into people's lives. Okay, so your dissertation research is on the findings that Catholic bishops who oppose the right-wing military dictatorships in Argentina, one of the countries you have spent a lot of time uh, researching, 1976 through 1983, were able to reduce killings in, quote, disappearances, in quote, in areas under their authority. So what evidence did you discover for the this findings, and how did you discover it? Right, so part of my dissertation research focused 
focuses on the specific role of Catholic bishops, who, as you know, are important leaders in the Catholic Church, in responding to this right-wing military dictatorship in Argentina from 1976 to 1983. And uh, during this time period, up to 30,000 people were victims of killings or disappearances. And disappearances were essentially when people were kidnapped and taken away by the military without a trace. So the dictatorship carried all of these these acts out. Uh, But some social groups, especially later on uh, towards the 1980s, decided to speak out and demand information about the people who had disappeared and were killed. And so many scholars in the past have seen the Catholic Church in Argentina as very sympathetic to the dictatorship. And while I did find some evidence that a majority of the bishops in the church, in fact, were sympathetic towards the dictatorship, a little more than a quarter of these bishops actually opposed the regime, and they took some actions to help people uh, who were becoming victims of, of this repression by the military. So these bishops were part of the group speaking out, they were taking actions to prevent repression from happening or, or from getting worse. And so I found this evidence in my dissertation through archival research. I was looking at different human rights archives for materials such as newspapers and magazines and reports, which helped me identify what these bishops were doing. And so I wanted to kind of build on some of the, the previous work about the Catholic Church in Argentina and, and develop a fuller picture through these archival resources of, of what the bishops' activities really were and if their ac- actions actually made a difference. So I had to answer this question through using different statistical methods because it's very hard to find direct evidence of, of everything that the bishops were doing during this time. And in fact, the Catholic Church has actually restricted access to some of the archives that w- might give answers to these questions and allows only people who are victims of the repression to, to access them. So despite these challenges in accessing data, though, I did find that these opposed bishops uh, were able to reduce repression and disappearances and killings in areas under their authority. What kind of information do the religious leaders gain that does become valuable to activists? Right. So one important point that I raise in writing about this research is that religious leaders have the ability to gain information about what's going on around them, particularly with respect to repression. And sometimes they can do this better than maybe other kinds of human rights activists can. And so one point I investigate is is why this is. So first, religious leaders are in charge of a lot of other religious officials. So in the Catholic Church, as, as you might know, bishops supervise priests who are assigned to local parish churches. And so priests are interacting on a regular basis with members members of their parish. And so they get to know the local news or hear about local rumors. And so if someone has been kidnapped or disappeared, or the military has been running operations in that local area, the church is likely to find out about it. And second, the piece of this that's important is that evidence suggests in Argentina in the 1970s that people tended to trust the Catholic Church, or at least they trusted the church more than they did other institutions in society like the military. So when someone disappeared, their relatives would often seek out the help of priests or bishops to to gather information or to advocate on their behalf. And so the bishops who opposed the dictatorship were the ones who really followed up on these appeals and took the information about the victims to the military. On the other hand, some bishops thought these disappearances weren't actually a bad thing for society at all, which was distressing to learn. But one way or another, this information did tend to make it to the church. And this information is very valuable because it helps activists who are learning about and collecting this information about repression to make their case to the outside world that this repression was going on and it made this case more believable. So so maybe this information persuaded people in Argentina who were uncertain about what was happening that there really were these human rights violations going on. So Pierce, did those 
bishops and those priests who made known the disappearances and the government had the military had participated in those disappearances did those priests also put their lives in danger like Father Romero's did in El Salvador? Yes, I do find some evidence that there were priests and, and bishops who faced repression from the state as a result of their actions. However, I would say it was a relatively small proportion, even compared to the amount of those that were speaking out. And the main reason for this is that the Catholic Church at this time was a very powerful and important institution, and the last thing that the regime was wanting to do was to call attention to what they were doing to the higher levels of the Catholic Church, in particular the Pope. And, and indeed, as this more information did start to get out about what was happening during the repression during the later part of the regime, the Pope did begin to criticize the regime for what was going on and, and as part of this larger human rights movement that was applying pressure on the government to, to stop these human rights violations. So you, you referred to institutional resources. That those would be resources that the religious leaders can use to reduce repression on the people. And you mentioned how or where some of those sources uh, can be found. Give us some examples of how those resources have been used or can be used. Right. So besides information, the other asset that I argue religious leaders have is these these resources in their churches or their denominations. Right. So these churches meet regularly. They provide services such as education and health care to the community. And the leaders of the churches are, are pretty visible to their members. And in Argentina, which was about 90 percent Catholic in the 1970s, that means a lot of people are meeting and receiving services and paying attention to the church. And so another part of these resources are lower level officials, like I've talked about before. So the priests who report to the bishops and bishops can therefore use their influence over priests to direct them in a certain way that they approve of or keep priests from making other decisions or doing other things that, that they don't approve of. So, so some examples of this, right, is that bishops could direct priests to help victims of their families who came asking for help, or bishops could also protect the priests themselves related to the earlier question about how, how they might have been putting themselves in danger so they could the bishops could keep the military from asking questions or trying to apply pressure on these priests who are helping out the, the victims of repression and sheltering them in their churches so the evidence for this right is i find that bishops who oppose the dictatorship who had more progressive priests working underneath them were more effective at reducing repression than other bishops so so i do conclude that these priests part of the, the resources of the church right, were able to contribute to reducing repression and, and one other example I'll mention is that there are these organizations that you might be familiar with in Latin America called ecclesial-based communities, right? And these were local-level networks of laypersons in the church and members of the clergy who tended to be progressive and, and were opposed to the military dictatorship during this time. And so I find that these communities tended to emerge under the authority of bishops who opposed the dictatorship. So this suggests to me that these bishops were using their authority and their resources to encourage these kinds of organizations to, to develop and, and to nurture them during this time. Uh, Pierce, you've mentioned uh, Argentina. What's the importance of Argentina to your research? Absolutely. Well, Argentina, I think, is just an example of a broader phenomenon in which religious leaders are able to have these effects. So, so one thing that's important is saying, does Argentina represent other cases or examples in which religious leaders have, have also been able to reduce the use of violence against citizens? And so one example I mentioned to compare Argentina in my research is, is the Philippines. And I discussed the Philippines because there is evidence that in this country, right, religious groups were able to reduce violence during 
during the recent so-called drug war that's been carried out by President Rodrigo Duterte. And a team of researchers from the United States and the Philippines found that the number of killings in this drug war is lower, nearer to Catholic parishes uh, than farther away from these parishes. And the evidence that they find suggests that this could be a result of members of the police being afraid of the consequences of what would happen if, if they were found out, if information about their killings got in the hands of members of the church, right, who would then publicize that information and, and might allow these killers to be to brought to justice. And so it's a good example to take Argentina and the Philippines and other countries and to notice this general pattern that we can see around the world that religious groups are able to reduce violence and conflict in different times and different places, right? And even under different types of government. So the bottom line is that religious groups make a difference. And Argentina is a good example of that, that we can also take and apply uh, to some other countries. You have a publication related to public opinion about nonviolent resistance. The article is about to be published in the British Journal of Political Science. Give us a sense of your position on public opinion and, and as it's related to nonviolent resistance. Yeah, great question. And I think this fits in really well with some of the other work we've been talking about on religious groups and the importance of information. And so the bottom line in this research is that nonviolent resistance really can only be as good as what people read or, or see about it. If people perceive a protest event as violent or even see people that they don't like participating in a protest, they're less supportive of that protest event. And they're more willing to say that the police would be justified in using force against protest protesters. And so in this research that you're mentioning, uh, we conducted surveys in the United States and Israel, which presented people with different information about protests. So some people read about violent protests, while other people read about nonviolent protests. And people read about protests also from different political or ethnic groups. And so we found that people who read about violent protests and protests from so-called outsider groups, people from a different political party or ethnicity from them, that these people were less supportive of the protests and thought that the police were more justified in using force against the protesters. So Pierce Edwards, you've talked a great deal here already about the impact that religious groups, Catholic Church in Argentina, for example, have had on uh, repressive regimes. But the historian Andrew Preston, author of Sword of the Spirit, Shield of Faith, points out that here in the United States, conservative religious groups often support war waged by the U.S. military and oppose civil rights movements and reforms. What's your position on American conservative Christian influence on U.S. foreign policy? What do you say to these Christian institutions that support war, American exceptionalism, and American corporate political establishment that benefits from an unjust economic system, as well as intervention in South America and Central American countries? And that's a great question, and there's a couple of dimensions to it. I mean, for the foreign policy side of the question, I would defer to my colleagues in political science who study issues of U.S. foreign policy making in greater depth. But, but one thing I can speak to on this is the conversation about you know, the relationship between religion, politics, and, and violence. And so one aspect of this that I want to highlight in response to this question is the idea of integralism. And so I can explain what this concept is. Uh, it's, it's basically a Christian philosophical perspective that the church and the state should be more tightly connected. So on one side, the church would benefit from having more access and influence over government, and that the government would also benefit from having religious 
figures involved in making policy decisions. And, and in fact, this is an idea that is gaining ground in some corners in the United States in the 21st century. But it was also a very popular idea in Argentina in the 20th century. So in that case, these integralists were, were very prevalent in the military and in the Catholic Church. And they believed that the church and the state shared a common enemy. So basically what they saw as Marxist groups that were atheistic and opposed to Western civilization. And they wanted to unite the military and the church in order to drive these groups out of Argentina or eliminate them completely. So this motivated the military coup in Argentina, which started the dirty war. So perhaps what you're describing in your question is something that's comparable in the United States, that there are Christian leaders who believe that they share common enemies with parts of the political establishment, whether they consider that to be Marxists or terrorist groups or, or something else that they define. And so in that sense, they see it as an advantage to ally with the establishment to eliminate their common enemies. And so, so if this pattern is, is concerning, uh, which certainly seems to be, one suggestion I would make in, in speaking out about this issue is to cite examples of regimes such as Argentina, in which the integralists have been able to gain power. And in that regime, like we talked about, uh, the result was a large amount of violence against civilians, right, who were, in fact, not Marxist or terrorists or anything else, right, and, and also the erosion of, of democracy. So I think that this is a trend that you very well could see if church and state power are able to fuse together in pursuit of these violent goals. Yeah, good point. There's also a premise you made in the abstract of the article you co-wrote with Daniel Arnon, and that was in 2019. The abstract reads, in a quote here, the success of protests depends on whether they favorably affect public opinion. Nonviolent resistance can win public support for a movement, but regimes counter, that means the public support, by framing protests as violent and instigated by outsiders. What's the evidence you have for this premise? Absolutely. So the evidence that, that we presented comes from the research I described earlier about how we are presenting respondents on surveys with different information about protests, whether protests were violent, whether protests were carried on by these out groups, outsider groups, either politically or, or in terms of ethnicity. And we argue that it's important to study this question because governments often attempt to present protests as violent or as committed by outsiders in order to reduce support for those protests. So there are many examples of this going on both in democracies and dictatorships. And so one of those examples that we mentioned in the paper is from Syria under the Bashar al-Assad regime. And so during the Arab Spring movement, the country initially had a large nonviolent protest movement against the dictatorship. And despite this, the regime described the protesters as terrorists, suggesting that they were using violent tactics instead, when in fact, at least at the beginning of this time period, they, they weren't. Um, it's also very common to see protests described as being instigated by outside agitators uh, as a way of discrediting them. And one example that many of us might be familiar with is, is how protests in the U.S. civil rights movement were described as being instigated by, by outside agitators. And an important point that I should make in describing the evidence for, for what's going on with the government uh, framing these protest events, labeling these protest events, is that the government might not be wrong. My co-author and I aren't saying that the government is right or wrong, though many times it is, and it has an agenda for, for what it says. But the point is we want to study what the government decides to say about the protests. That certainly is an issue right now here in the United States because of the civil rights protests that are going on all over the country. McConnell and Trump are both accusing the protesters of being violent and kind of exaggerating that violence so that they can justify 
law and order and actually running on a, on a plank of law and order. What's the response that nonviolent uh, protesters can give to that kind of accusation? Is, are there examples of that going on in, in other countries, that, that there is a response to, an effective response to the government's uh, suggestions? Yeah, so, so I think that one thing that nonviolent movements can do in response to this effort by governments to present certain information selectively about what's happening in protests is to develop some sort of alternative media source, and especially in authoritarian regimes where the media environment is very controlled and only what the government says about protest events is what people read or watch, that protesters can accomplish a lot by disseminating alternative information. And so this was one discussion, especially in the Arab Spring early on, about the importance of social media for spreading information and organizing protests. But I think there's a similar lesson for, for protesters who are concerned that what they're doing is being misrepresented or, or mislabeled. Yeah. So, Pierce Edwards, you selected two liberal democracies to illustrate the effects of, quote, framing on public opinion. These countries... Israel and the United States, what does it mean to frame public opinion? Right, so I've mentioned this term a couple of times before, and I'd say to define it that framing is basically a way of calling attention to one specific aspect of an issue. So as the name frame suggests, this is like approaching some scene that you see in the real world and holding up a picture frame to a particular part of it and describing what's inside that frame as, as what's really true. And so an example from current events that my co-author and I like to give in, in presentations of this research uh, came from France during the Yellow Vest protests in early 2019. And there's this news image of a street protest in which you see many people marching non-violently. However, on the other side of the street, you see a small pile of trash that's burning. And the image shows a group of several news photographers who are huddled around the pile of burning trash trying to take photos of it even as the peaceful protest goes on near them. And so when we talk about framing and specifically framing a protest, this is what we're referring to, is that when the government or the media or anyone who's covering these events is choosing a particular aspect of that protest event to highlight. Thank you. You take these stance on the advantages of nonviolent resistance campaigns. And here's a quote. Uh, it is in the interest of an opposition movement to present their actions as nonviolent to favorably affect the behavior of the regime and mass public. That would be in preventing the military from cracking down. The opposition movement then would be an organization acting nonviolently against some government action, policy, or law by the regime in that country, right? So yes. what the, yeah, so what are the advantages of nonviolent resistance against campaigns or nonviolent resistance campaigns against an oppressive government and regime? What are those advantages? Right. So one thing I've mentioned is that potentially these peaceful protest movements should make an effort to make sure that the tactics that they're using are, are being reflected accurately. So this assumes that they want to present their protests as peaceful. And, and well, why is this? Uh, so there's a sub. this is a subject that has a lot of excellent past research on it by other scholars. You may be familiar with the work of Gene Sharp, who dedicated his career to understanding nonviolent tactics and why they're effective. And more recently, the political scientists Erica Chenoweth and Maria Stefan have written a well-known book entitled Why Civil Resistance Works, The Strategic Logic of Nonviolent Conflict. And basically, in that book, Chenoweth and Stefan argue that nonviolence has an advantage over violence because it encourages more people to participate, it can spread its message more easily, and it attracts moral support from people. So nonviolent resistance is also something 
that ordinary people can just get up and participate in if they feel strongly. On the other hand, violent resistance tends to be carried out by people with more specialized training, and also there's greater moral reservations among many people for participating in or supporting violence. So, so nonviolence works, according to Chinoweth and Stefan, uh, because it is open and, and morally courageous, and that brings its support. Yeah, we've seen some of the effective types of uh, tactics you know, used in this country. Are there others that uh, we don't normally see that are effective types of, of resistance? This is another area of research that, that is definitely growing. Uh, there's scholars that, that I cite and read. Uh, one example is Kathleen Cunningham at the University of Maryland, who spends a lot of time measuring the different kinds of tactics that groups around the world are using nonviolently. And basically what her and her collaborators' research has shown is that these groups are, are very adaptable in the use of their tactics, and they tend to be willing to use different kinds of tactics depending on the circumstances. So, for example, sometimes boycotts might be more effective in other cases, a mass march might be more effective. So it's not just what tactics are used, but when they're used and, and how they're used. In my own research, I can talk a little bit about the tactics uh, and tie them back to what the Catholic Church in Argentina was doing. In that case, you see many different kinds of tactics being used. Uh, for example, members of the church uh, might write letters to the dictatorship demanding information. They, they would make in-person appearances at government offices to, to speak up about repression. Uh, one bishop even threatened to shut down all of the services that were occurring in his diocese if the military did not give him information about someone who was a victim of repression. And bishops also took part in what we might think of as more conventional tactics, leading mass marches. They would coordinate activities with other human rights groups. And what this allowed was for these groups to make connections with an international campaign, which was pointing out all of the human rights violations going on under the dictatorship. So I think many of these tactics in Argentina were effective, but ultimately it was the combination of the different tactics being used simultaneously that was effective in ultimately bringing down the dictatorship and ending the repression. So there's a little more research and uh, studying to do that we all can, can learn from all over the country, all over the world. So, Pierce Edwards, in an article you composed and published in, in the British Journal, you argue that, quote, framing of a group's affiliation affects observers' perceptions of continuous action by defining their in-group or out-of-group status relative to participants. So you're asking that if one is affiliated with a particular group, that group affiliation affects how one views an issue? Have I got that correct? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Observers of continuous events can either share a salient group's affiliation or not. Why is it important to know the difference between in-group and out-of-group? And what does that matter? Right. So these are very important concepts uh, that factor into this research. Basically, they matter because they talk about whether someone else shares some important identity with you. So in Israel, where my co-author and I carried out part of our research, there is a very strong Israeli national identity because of that country's history of conflict. And it's, of course, religious significance to many people of the Jewish faith. So for one Israeli, we would consider another Israeli to be a member of an in-group or this, share that same identity affiliation. Whereas Palestinians, on the other hand, have been considered to be on the other side of the conflict with Israel. And as a result of that, a Palestinian would be seen as a member of a, an out-group relative to the Israelis, so not sharing that identity affiliation. Let's go back to Argentina here. 
you talked a great deal about that. So you examine, quote, the argument and its mechanism in the Argentine military dictatorship of 1976 through 1983, in which the right-wing regime, quote, disappeared, end quote, and killed thousands of a campaign known as the Dirty War. What did you find with your examination of, quote, the argument and its mechanism in the Argentine military dictatorship, end quote. Right, so so this is similar to what I described earlier in our conversation about the evidence that bishops who opposed the dirty war that I found, and, and I found that these bishops were able to reduce repression uh, in areas under their authority. So when I talk about mechanisms, right, that's specifically how bishops were able to use their resources and use the information they had, such as priests, uh, to be able to reduce repression. So, so when I say mechanism in an argument, it's just a way of explaining how bishops were able to do that. So I have evidence about the bishops who opposed the dictatorship, and I have a lot of evidence on the amount of repression that happened, and, and I find that these opposed bishops had less repression uh, compared to other bishops in areas under their authority. And so the question is, well, I see this pattern, uh, but, but I need to explain how, right? And so that's where the digging into the evidence and finding this information playing a role and also these resources playing a role is, is, is why I bring that into the argument. Okay, so you looked at the period in Argentina from 76 to, to 83 uh, when the military dictatorship regime ruled the land. But from 1946 to 51, the number of Argentinas covered by Social Security more than tripled. So that in 1951, more than 5 million people, 70% of the economically active population, were covered by Social Security. Healthcare insurance also spread to new industries including banking, metal working. Between 45 and 49, real wages went up 22%, and then increased again from 53 to 59, ending up at least 30% higher than in 1946. So the population, in terms of wages, rose 41% of the national income from 1946 to 1948 to 49% in 1952. That's during the, the Peron era. The boost of the real incomes of workers were encouraged by government policies, such as the enforcement of minimum wage laws, controls on the prices of food and other basic consumption items, and extending housing credits to workers. A universal health care system was implemented, as evidenced by research done by McGuire, Peronism without Peron, unions, parties, and democracies in Argentina. The average wages rose about 35% from 1935 to 49. According to Duffy Norman Francis, the sociology of the blue-collar worker. With this economic progress, is it fair to say that Juan Perón was Argentina's maybe Lorenzo Cardenas or, or Franklin Roosevelt? If so, the military dictatorship that replaced the Perones replaced a government that was working for most people, right? right so that's a, a really important question, I think, that's central to Argentine history. And I can talk a little bit about Juan Perón in Argentina. He's one of the most controversial but very important figures in, in Argentine history. And it would be hard to, to do him justice in, in just a, a few minutes. Uh, but I can say this about the time period uh, in his first presidency that you're describing in the 1940s and 1950s. He certainly accomplished a tremendous amount for the poor and working class of the country, empowering labor unions and, and also increasing w women's participation in politics. 
Um, on the other hand, though, he was uh, became controversial because of his authoritarian leadership style, and he also developed a very top-down organization that a lot of the power went ultimately through him and was not very representative. And he also, as a result of this, came into conflict uh, with, with other social groups. And so the military, where Perón originally came from, right, was very divided over whether or not to support him, and ultimately the faction of the military that disagreed with him uh, was able to lead to his ouster in, in a coup in 1955. Um, and he also provoked conflict with, with the Catholic Church. Um, and so there was a large segment of society who supported the Catholic Church who also did not support Perón. And he also has a complicated relationship uh, with some of the regimes in Europe. So he studied under the Benito Mussolini regime in Italy. Um, and he's also known for having uh, taken in numerous uh, escaped Nazi officials after World War II. So, so he's a very complicated character. And just as, as an example of how, how conflicted the legacy of Perón is, there were still groups in Argentina in the 1970s who were trying to bring him back uh, to become president for a second time. And, and he actually did for a short period of time before he died. But there were groups that simultaneously, there was one group that was fascist on one extreme and another group that was communist, perhaps on the other extreme, that were both calling themselves supporters of Perón uh, in the 1970s. And, and to this day, the, the movement in Argentina uh, that carries on the name of Perón and his policies um, has changed very frequently and has fit very many different molds. And so it's, it's very hard to pin down what exactly Perón's legacy is in Argentina and, and whether it's been uh, perhaps a constructive thing for Argentine history or, or a destructive thing. And it really depends on who you ask in Argentina. It's, it's a very controversial subject. And so I think if we're talking about who best to compare as the Cardenas or the Roosevelt uh, in particular of Argentina, I think there's another historical figure that would be worth investigating, and, and that's the president of Argentina, Hipólito Irigoyen. And he was president in, of Argentina uh, in the 1910s and the 1920s. Um, and he was known for expanding uh, voting rights to, to apply to at least all men at the time, and also a number of other reforms um, of the economy and, and of society. And, and his label is he's called the father of the poor uh, in Argentina. And he, he was a, a democratically elected leader. And he uh, was actually deposed by yet another military coup uh, in, in 1930. So, so as you can see, this theme of the military on one hand and those working for, you know, kind of greater rights and expansion of rights and, and liberties for, for the lower income members of Argentine society, there's definitely a tension uh, between those two forces in, in the history of Argentina. Yeah, so, yeah, absolutely. But as you pointed out, the military coup ended the regime of Juan Perot, uh, Evita Perot also. Uh, and then the, the Dirty War did occur with that military coup. But the, dis the Dirty War, the disappearance and the killing of thousands of Argentina is not solely the fault of the Argentine military dictatorship alone, because those dictatorships were supported by the Nixon-Kessinger administration, as evidenced by uh, Ruth Berkeley, state terrorism, neoliberalism, the North and the South. Also, Rutledge, McSherry, Jay, Harthras, in quote, industrial repression and operation, Condor in Latin America, also uh, in Apresa, penned by Marcia and Henry L. R. Huttenbach, Daniel Bernstein, their book, States, Violence, and Genocide in Latin America, the Cold War Years, as well as, quote, Kessinger 
back Dirty War Against Leftists in Argentina, published in The Guardian, August 2019, and penned by Julian Barger. So the United States has had a great deal to do with the military coup and the dirty war that occurred in Argentina. Yeah, absolutely. I am happy to, to talk more about kind of the role of, of the United States in the, the Cold War in the region, if, if you're interested in, in discussing that further. I just wanted you to confirm that, yes, the United States was involved in the military coup and the dirty war that did occur, at least to some extent, in Argentina. I can be a little more specific. So so with respect to the coup itself, the United States was certainly involved in, in more uh, military coups in other countries. The most perhaps infamous and well-known example, right, is the military coup in Chile in 1973 Yeah, uh, that was backed by, by the U.S. government. The coup in Argentina was not directly backed by the U.S. government, but there's a somewhat infamous incident in 1976 in which Henry Kissinger does basically give what was called the green light uh, to the repression that was going on uh, during those first couple years of the dictatorship. And so while the U.S. might not have applied pressure behind the initial military takeover of power in 1976, um, at least for the first couple of years until the, the Carter administration took office, right, the military uh, regime did feel like it had the approval of the United States to, to carry out the repression that it was carrying out. You've taken a position on a Catholic cult who appointed Argentine bishops without consideration of the local political, socioeconomic, and, and religious characteristics. You can describe the relationship between opposition or the opposed bishops and the repression free of many potential confounding variables. What does it mean, opposed bishops? What does that mean, and, and why are they important? So, yeah, this is related to our earlier discussion about the, the research on the, the church and the role of the bishops. And so the bishops in the church had a variety of different views towards the military dictatorship. And some of them were more supportive of the dictatorship than others. And so, as I mentioned, about 30% of the bishops that I identified opposed the military and the campaign of repression that it carried out during the Dirty War. And as I mentioned, this came through a lot of archival research uh, in the country to determine the position of these bishops. And I think another reason that these bishops are important, specifically the ones that were opposed, is that they represent a very serious disagreement uh, with some of their superiors in the Catholic Church and also some of their colleagues. Uh, the most senior figures in the church in Argentina at the time uh, tended to support the dictatorship, or at least they were willing to look the other way uh, when repression was going on. And some even justified the repression as necessary. Um, so these opposed bishops were important uh, because they were a minority that spoke out about the human rights of the victims of repression. And as we talked about earlier, they were willing to put themselves on the line and potentially even put themselves in danger uh, over this issue that they were speaking out about. Yeah, and, and the, the bishops that supported the military dictatorship, they were benefiting from that form of government? Right, so this relates to this discussion earlier about uh, integralism, right, and this idea that the bishops felt that they, by having a closer relationship with the military, would probably get some benefits for themselves, right, that the, the military would protect the interests of the church in society. One issue that was very important to the church during this time in Argentina was the issue of education, uh, whether or not this, the government would support Catholic education. And so that was one benefit that the church saw in, in being closer to the military, potentially. Um, and on the other hand, the military was very happy to welcome the support of some members of the church. In fact, there was a, a large bureaucracy in the church whose goal 
uh, was just to minister to the members of the military. And so there's some, some very disturbing accounts of, of the members of the military who would be going out and executing people, and they would come back, and, and the priests and, and some of these individuals in the military uh, would, would tell them that what they were doing was acceptable and try to clear their consciences um, over what they were doing. And, and it's like I said earlier, there was this very strong belief in these parts of society that they were fighting uh, to save Christianity against who they saw as the, the atheists uh, who were, were fighting maybe on, on the communist side. So, so there's a very strong belief that doing this violence was necessary. And so that's why these bishops who were speaking out against it were, I think, so powerful is because they were going against this trend and pressure in the church uh, to accept what was going on. Well, this may be of interest to you, Pierce, and maybe our audience, because this, the United States Institute for Peace is having a, a gathering on the 24th of September, and it's discussing, there's a discussion between five different participants, Bishop Robert W. McElroy, you may know some of these names, Scott Appleby, Sergio Cabrales, Marie Dennis, Maria Stefan. They're going to be talking about how the Catholic Church is able to advance peace globally by building strategic and tactical bridges between grassroots nonviolence actions and peace-building actors. What do you think about that? <laughs> I think that's fantastic, and that's exactly the kind of phenomenon that I'm discussing in, in my research in, in Argentina. Um, and I think that scholars in the United States, such as Maria Stefan, uh, Marie Dennis, who is involved in leading Pax Christi, United States, which is a part of the Catholic peace movement. These are great coalitions of people who, who I think can really benefit from being in continued conversation with each other. And, and people like Maria Stefan and Marie Dennis have been involved in this work for, for a very, very long time. One notable example of this kind of collaboration, there was actually a conference held in the Vatican in 2016, and both of, of those women I just mentioned were in attendance and it was focused on the theme of nonviolence and just peace. And it was convened with the approval, of course, of, of Pope Francis, who has expressed an interest in these kinds of issues. So seeing these connections between the church, between researchers, between activists on the ground uh, is, I think, very fruitful because there's a lot of potential for, as we were discussing earlier, tactics, uh, deepening our understanding of the moral foundations of nonviolence, right, they can come out of these exchanges. And so, so one resource I would recommend to you, if you're interested in, in reading more, is the proceedings of this 2016 conference at the Vatican uh, were, were written up in an edited volume by Marie Dennis, and it was essentially about how the Catholic Church returns to gospel nonviolence was the, this, the title of the book. So I would encourage anyone who's interested in, in this topic and this, these kinds of connections between different people to, to look at that resource. Yeah, so Pierce, you've talked about the fact that religion, Catholicism, for example, has been on both sides of the issue of, in Argentina, for example. So here's my experience with Christianity here in, in, in the States, and particularly Catholicism. I talked with, I spent about an hour and a half talking with a local priest, a Catholic priest, and my position was the Catholic Church should support righteous, nonviolent, peaceful movements. And I used Mark Kurlansky, Nonviolence, the History of a Dangerous Ideal, Andrew Preston, Sword of the Spirit, Shield of Faith, as well as quotes from the Christian Bible to support my position that the Catholic Church should support justice and peace. 
And after after our discussion, the priest said, well, yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. The, the Catholic Church should support peace and justice. But if I spend too much time preaching the social gospel here at this Catholic Church, I'm going to lose half my congregation. And I literally cannot afford to do that. So what did we say to priests who would like to come out in support of peace and justice, but are afraid to because they know they're going to lose a significant part of their congregation if they do so? That's a difficult, but I think very important question. And I'm not in a position to suggest what individual clergy should say in the pulpit, because I do think that's a matter of their conscience and also uh, their understanding of their teachings in their particular church or denomination. Uh, But what I can say uh, is that I, I think there are ways that uh, clergy or really any person can talk about or frame, to use the language we were using earlier, these issues in a way that, that might stop short of, of creating a schism or a division in a church. And I think that we can talk about issues such as war and oppression in terms that, that may be more universally accessible to people and, and based on enduring religious teachings, uh, rather than maybe a particular political ideology in the present. And, and that's kind of this traditional power of the church and in speaking these eternal truths, right? So one famous philosopher of nonviolence, right, is is Leo Tolstoy. And and he based almost his entire view on nonviolent resistance based on the Sermon on the Mount that that Jesus gives in in the Gospels, which is just a very simple but powerful message about the importance, right, of peacemaking and justice. And ultimately, of course, not everyone will agree with what is said in the pulpit. So I think it's equally important uh, to continue presenting issues in a way that's that's both universally accessible to people, but also reminding church members of, of values and beliefs that are shared um, across other issues to create a common foundation. Because I think when, when that baseline uh, sense of shared values and goals is established, then it might be easier to talk about issues such as, as peace and justice. And, and of course, it won't be perfect and, and not everyone can be happy at all times uh, with these kinds of discussions but I think using that as a starting point uh, could could be a, a way to go good answer so one more question Pierce Edwards the 21st century we talked a great deal about Argentina and the 21st as you pointed out the 21st century history of Argentina is very complex can you give us an example of books or articles that give us a deeper understanding of that history. Great. Yes, like I said, Argentina is a fascinating and complicated case, and so I hope what I've discussed today has been able to pique people's interest in in the topic. And so if you're interested in continuing to read about Argentina, there are a few good places to start. So so one author I recommend is an Argentine journalist named Jacobo Timmerman, and he was a political prisoner during the dictatorship, and so he wrote a book entitled Prisoner Without a Name about his experiences uh, under the dictatorship and also reflecting on Argentine society. Um, Another author who has written a large amount on issues related to human rights uh, is the journalist named Horacio Verbitsky. And so he is actually the leader of a human rights organization in Argentina today. And he studied this issue that we've been talking about, the Catholic Church, the military, uh, very extensively. Um, And there's also a a scholar in the United States named Marguerite Faitlewitz, and she has written what I think is a very excellent book called The Lexicon of Terror about the dictatorship. And this is basically about how people talked and thought about uh, living under this authoritarian regime and, and how the regime used kinds of these strategies like we talked about earlier of, of framing 
and information to kind of control how people were thinking or talking about the dictatorship. And finally, for work on the Catholic Church in Argentina, uh, there's a lawyer who's now deceased named Emilio Mignone, who has written several books on the subject of the relationship between the Catholic Church and the dictatorship. So, so I think those are all excellent authors to start. And of course, you can probably find many articles in newspapers and magazines online uh, related to these topics as well. Okay, Pierce, we are unfortunately running out of time together. Uh, to wrap up our time, in addition to the uh, resources that you've already given us, <clears throat> would you recommend for our listeners some uh, websites or online offerings or discussions for activists? Right, so I would encourage listeners to investigate the International Center for Nonviolent Conflict, or the ICNC, if they're interested in research and writing on, on nonviolence more generally. And I also mentioned earlier, Pax Christi International is a Catholic organization which is dedicated to promoting nonviolence and an end to war, and they have many local chapters in the United States. Uh, but while there are many other resources out there, I think these are just a good uh, baseline to go from our conversation today. Great. And would you welcome uh, online interaction with yourself? Absolutely. Uh, you can find me online. I maintain some presence on Twitter. Pierce A. Edwards is my Twitter handle, and that's the main way that I uh, communicate and share research and, and talk about these different kinds of issues. All right. Our conversation today has been with Pierce Edwards, who has been sharing his research and reflections on repression and resistance to authoritarian regimes. We do appreciate your being with us to explore more solutions to violence. Thank you for joining us uh, along with our listeners here on Forward Radio. Thank you, Pierce. You can listen to Solutions to Violence live stream by visiting us at forwardradio.org and choosing Listen Live Now. We air Solutions to Violence on Mondays at 5 p.m., Tuesdays at 8 a.m., and Wednesdays at 6 a.m. This program featuring Pierce Edwards will be placed in our archives September 30th, 2020. To listen via our archives, visit us at Forward Radio, choose Program Archives, and scroll down to the Solutions to Violence program that features Pierce Edwards. If you'd like to share your thoughts about our discussion with Pierce Edwards, you can reach us at the following email, solutionsofviolence18 at gmail.com. I'm Jim Johnson. My co-host is Jamie McMillan, and our technical engineer is Carolyn Brooks Johnson. Wishing you and yours wellness, safety, and peace in these challenging COVID pandemic times. Until next time, please keep the peace in your own way and help others do the same. Thanks for listening. I'm John Johnson.